thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. As we've been talking about, uh, hopefully you've heard from somewhere that we're having a capital campaign that's going on. If you've missed that, welcome back. I mean, basically is what it comes down to. But you wonder like, a church doesn't do these kind of things lightly. I just want you to know that on the front end. We've been talking about this for over a year, prayerfully considering what we might do, what we should do, what we could do. And as we think about this, it helps us to remember what the purpose of the church is. The church exists that we might worship God, but also that we might pass down our faith to the next generation. That's what the church has been since the beginning of time. And us as a 226-year-old church who've gotten to see God's faithfulness from generation to generation have a unique opportunity to pass on our faith to the next generation. Even as James talked about in his sermon last week, the decline of the American church so often happens because we miss this generational transfer. And we have this opportunity now. And if you've been around the elementary ministry, if you volunteered, I've gotten to volunteer all last year, when you've got six grades and five classrooms, many of which are not set up for them. If you've ever been in the fireside room, not exactly a children's ministry mecca of space. If you've ever been in the fellowship hall, also not great. We've had to, by necessity, put a bunch of kids in the gym, which is not what's best for them. So this whole capital campaign, the whole idea, 70% of it, is to create adequate and appropriate space, like we have for nursery and preschool, like we have for middle school and high school for our elementary kids, as we love and care for young families and train and teach parents to equip them to disciple their own kids. And where our hope is that this space is great for our own kids, but also to reach out to the community of faith of families who don't know Jesus, that this would be a way to bring them in. So we long for you to get the vision for this, to understand why we're doing this, and to be able to get the information you need as you consider being a part of it. And so if you happen to miss the town hall meetings the last two weeks during the middle hour, we filmed the one this week. It's going to be on the website. We'll probably email out a link to you this next week. So then you can watch for yourselves, hear what we're talking about, see the whys, the whats, the hows, and how you can be a part of it. And also, we'd love for you to come next week during the middle hour for just Q&A. Great chance to have your questions answered specifically as we think about what this next opportunity is for us. Because what we long to do is to create space for elementary kids to be in small groups, to be able to enjoy each other, and be able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that's accessible for them. Man, what a privilege and what an honor to be a part of something like that. So we hope that you will be. One other way that you can be a part of this is reading the literature and things we've already sent to you. But we also have had some videos of testimony that we think are encouraging for you. So Chris and Jones today is our video. So please give your attention to the video. It is a lot trying to get two kids out the door with their clothes on. You know, things get forgotten. I'm usually back to the house about three or four times before actually we're gone for good. Yeah, it's a lot. We come to church almost about every week, the three of us from La Follette. 
And I think for us, it's just been our saving grace in terms of giving us some stability and a sense of peace for myself and for the kids. The kids are getting what they need in their class when, you know, I'm getting what I need for my week to be the best mom I can be. I think everyone needs help raising a child, whether they be married, not married, with help, not help. I don't have help. So to be part of a church this size and to know people, to have people know myself and my children, it's just, it feels like the biggest blessing in the world. My story certainly isn't over. My children's story isn't over. And I think that's the biggest part it's going to play in my life is that because of my kids are so young, I get to look forward to these next many years with their own belief in the Lord growing. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than that. Parent, name your child. Poppy Elizabeth Jones. Poppy Elizabeth, beloved of God and child of the covenant, I baptize you in the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. May the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and dwell in your heart forever. To be learned to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and one day stand before him with joy unspeakable. Hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus gave us the church family because he knows none of us are equipped to, to make it alone. And so in this beautiful thing called church, we have spiritual mothers and fathers, and we have spiritual brothers and sisters, and we have those, those friends that help us make our way through this life. This really is why we're building. The reality is that we don't actually have the space that we need to do robust ministry with our children. For a church, any building project isn't about the building. It's about the ministry that will take place in and through that building. And what we're doing is creating more family space. We're creating space for, for our church family and especially for our, for our kids. My family, we need this church. Our members, they need this church. The families around us who don't know Jesus, they need this church as well. And you've heard Kristen share about how she and her kids, James and Poppy, need this church. And that's why we're inviting you to be a part of this project. So you'll be there for them and for each other. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? 
So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. When I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to him, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Strong foundation, future mission. God is raising up the next generation of our church, and that's what this capital campaign is all about. Our goal is 100% participation. We don't want anyone to miss out. And today, I would like you, I'd like to invite you to be, to be part of this campaign. But first, let's give our hearts and let's give our attention to his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we, we do ask that you would be pleased to draw near to us once more and be our teacher. And that these moments wouldn't just be going through the motions, a wasting of our time, but really would be uh, sacred. Moments in which you draw near to us, your people, and help us to understand more of your love and its implications for our lives. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we asked, what do you do when you hear the world is broken? What do you do when you hear the world is broken? We saw what Nehemiah did when he heard about his broken world, about how Jerusalem had been destroyed, about how the temple had been destroyed, about how the people were in great trouble and shame. When he heard his world was broken, he did three things, weep, 
pray, commit. And in this, then we have a gospel text, a picture of, of Jesus, the prophet who would weep over Jerusalem, the priest who would pray for his people, the king who would use his position at the right hand of the father to commit to the welfare of his beloved. We said that what Nehemiah did for Jerusalem, Jesus has done for us. And because he has, our lives can be different as well. Because Jesus has loved us in our brokenness, we are now able to love others in their brokenness. Loved by him, we can now love like him and make this world a better place. Now, as we arrive in Nehemiah chapter 2, it's time for Nehemiah to act. Enough with the weeping and the praying and the committing. Now it's time to act. And doesn't that time come when the time for words has passed. Now it's time to step up and act. I think of David when he was just a, a shepherd boy, standing before Goliath and, and saying to Saul, hey, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? No one else is, is going to go up and fight him. Well, enough's enough. Not on, not on my watch. I'm drawing a line in the sand. Today is a day that I'm going to act. I think of William Wilberforce as he opposed slavery. He said, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. I cannot accept a world like this. It's time for me to step up and act. It's Rosa Parks as she refuses to give up her seat. It's Mother Teresa as she washes the leper's feet. It's the countless men and women throughout history who've said, I can't, I'm not going to stand for this. Enough's enough. I'm drawing a line in the sand. The time for talking has passed. It's time to act. Well, that's where Nehemiah finds himself in this chapter. And as he acts, he's going to show us three things about how we can love this broken world. You ready? Point one, when it's time to act, you need, point one, clear eyes. When it's time to act, you need clear eyes. Put one finger on verse one of chapter one. When we first meet Nehemiah, you see it there. It is the month of Chislev. Now get your other hand and put your finger on verse one of chapter two, where now we read it is the month of Nisan. We have moved from the month of Chislev to the month of Nisan. These details are important. Why? Because they tell us how long Nehemiah devoted himself to prayer before the Lord? Answer, four months. Four months he gave himself to seeking the Lord. And in this time, he received a vision from God. God gave him clear eyes over what it was he was meant to do. What was his mission? He describes it there in verse five. He is to go and rebuild Jerusalem. He is to go and, and rebuild its walls. In verse 12, he tells us that this wasn't something that he came up with, but it was a mission that God had given him to do. Something that, quote, God had put into my heart to do. 
Nehemiah is great because he's a man of prayer and a man of action. But when it comes time to act, he doesn't just run out and start trying some stuff. (laughs) He seeks the Lord to see what it is God would have him do. And God makes this clear to him. When it's time to act, Nehemiah is given clear eyes from God. And it got me wondering whether or not I spend enough time with God to have a vision for my life. Do you spend enough time with God to have clear eyes over what God, God is calling you to in this life? Because you know, you know, most of the Christian life isn't a mystery. 99% of God's will for our lives is made really clear to us in this, in this book. We don't have to, have to guess about the kind of people God would want us to be. He, he has told us about how to make the most of life. Of course, though, for us, it's so easy to get caught up in the busyness. We run from one thing to the next without stopping to consider, is the life you're leading even the life that you want? Do you have clear eyes over the kind of life that God is calling you to? College students, welcome back and welcome home. Do you have clear eyes for what God has for you this year? Do you have a sense of what kind of person does God want you to be a year from now? And are you doing the things that that will take you there? Couples, do you have clear eyes for your marriage? Do you have a vision for your marriage? Do you have a, a picture of what your marriage should be? Because if you don't, you're going to get caught up in the busyness of dressing kids and running carpool and doing teeth and putting kids in, in the bath and then putting them in bed and then just falling asleep. Right? You, uh, do, you have a, do you have a picture in your mind of what you want your own marriage to look like? And, and are you being the kind of spouse who can actually make that vision a reality? I think of parents. Do, you, do we have a vision for our kids? Do we know... What would even success look like for us? What are, we, what are we aiming at? How do we hope to raise our kids? Do we, have a, do we have a vision for our kids that isn't shaped by the American dream, but it's something so much better, a, a vision shaped by his word? And are we actually pouring into our kids the kind of things that will make that vision a reality? One more. Seniors, do you have a vision for your final years? Do you have clear eyes on how your last years can be your best years yet? (laughs) How you can glorify God and, and leave a beautiful legacy to those of us who come next. Clear eyes from God. Friends, I don't want to kinda sorta meander my way through life. You know, it's been said, if if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And I don't want to look back at my life and say, well, that was busy. I was busy with a lot of nothing. I don't want that kind of life. I want to have clear eyes from God to make the most of our time here on earth. Friends, as we need that personally, I believe we need that as a church. And I believe that God has given us clear eyes. He has given us a vision to be the church for another generation to be the church for another generation. And this building project isn't about a building. I said, I said that in the video, and I hope, I hope you capture that idea. The building's important. It's a, it's a tool that we need in order to be something much more, <laughs> to be the church for another generation, to be the bride of Christ, to be the hope of the world, to be a people who bring the clarity of God's word to a culture that's in confusion, 
to be a people who bring hope and healing to those who are hurting, to be a people who give their lives to serve God in this next generation. The, the world needs a church like this. The world needs a church like this. A couple of weeks from now, I'm going to be in uh, Bonnie, Scotland with uh, 10 pastor friends. And I'm kind of giving them a, a tour of, of Scotland and we're going to meet with some of our missionaries and it's going to be a grand old time. And a lot of that will be spent telling them about the beautiful work God did in the past. And we won't be able to spend as much time on all that's happening there in the present. Why? Because the church has just been in such spectacular decline. Go there and the, the great grand churches that I can tell you about the history are now movie theaters. Uh, sites where famous covenanters were buried. Even John Knox himself. You know, do you know where John Knox's grave is in Edinburgh? It's a parking lot. A country that was once used powerfully by God now has less than 1% of its population that would claim to be Bible-believing evangelical Christians. And you know <laughs> that Europe gives the American church a picture of itself. The decline that has happened there is, is being followed here in, in the States. And friends, not today. Enough's enough. Drawing a line in the sand, time, time for us to act, to have clear eyes on the fact that our world needs a church like this. I need a church like this. My family needs a church like this. You heard Christian Jones talk about how she and her kids need a church like this. I believe our neighbors who don't know Jesus need a church like this. I believe that the poor and addicted of our city need a church like this. I believe that our missions partners and the nations need a church like this. I believe that you need a church like this. God has given us clear eyes on what we are to be. Yes, celebrate the history, a strong foundation in order to move forward into the future, moving forward with his mission to be the church for another generation. Do you see that? You know, that's why God called me here. I don't want to like run too far down this alley, but I want to run down some of it. Okay. Um, you know, there were three years between when I first spoke to Cedar Springs and, and when we ended up coming to this church. And in that three-year period, God did some important work in our hearts and did some beautiful things in our, in our church. He knew the end from the beginning and he was readying us to move us in, into this next season. But you know, in that period, it ended with the Lord making it really clear to us that we were to come, but I, didn't, I couldn't really tell you why. Uh, the Lord made it very clear that, that we were to come and my family were to uproot, turn our lives upside down, move to Knoxville and, and pastor this church. And if you'd ask, I didn't have three great reasons why. He, it, it was more the call of, you know, the call of obedience? Like we're, we're men and women under authority. And when Jesus says, go, you go. And so I sat at our dining room table, the six Forsyths in a circle, tears in some eyes because of how life was being turned upside down and told them, I don't have great reasons for this, but I promise you, you will never regret following Jesus. That if we, if we trust our lives to him 
and do what he has called us to, we will, we will not look back and regret that decision. Now, since we've got here, God's been kind to make it a little bit more clear as to why, as to why he brought us here. And you know what? It's not so I can lead a nice church and foster a nice social club and certainly not to oversee the decline of some like once noble institution. Jesus called me here to, to love and lead this church and its next generation. Now listen to this is so important. There's nothing unique about me. That's also why he's called you here too. That's also why he's called you here too. I have my own story about how the Lord brought me to this place. And you have your own story about how the Lord brought you to this place. And here we are together in this place that we might be the church for another generation. That you, a people of the word, filled with his spirit, as he has done beautiful things through you in the past. There's still more to do. Friends, do you see it? Do you see it? Clear eyes the church for another generation. Point two, when it's time to act, you need clear eyes, but you also need, point two, a full heart. Clear eyes and a full heart. Take a moment to consider the impossibility of the task that stretches out before Nehemiah. How impossible it is to rebuild Jerusalem. In his commentary, James Montgomery Boyce highlights three of the difficulties. First, the task itself was overwhelming. The whole city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. It has been set on, on fire. And now in an age without any heavy machinery, Nehemiah is going to try and rebuild the whole city. It's going to be slow, difficult, painstaking work. Second difficulty is the history of defeat. Um, Nehemiah is not the first one to try and rebuild Jerusalem. An attempt was made just 13 years before, and it had ended in, in unglorious failure. And so here's Nehemiah trying to succeed where others have failed. Third difficulty is his discouraged group of workers. Do you remember how the people are described back in chapter one? As a people who are in great trouble and shame. He doesn't have a motivated crew, a motivated group of, of workers to help him get this done. But worse than all of that, worse than all of that, if Nehemiah is to succeed, he has to get help from the king. Persian kings, they were not warm, jovial, grandfatherly figures, you know, gave you ice cream and a hug. These are they're cruel tyrants who would kill you as soon as look at you. And here is Nehemiah as, as an exile in this land, coming into the king's presence to make a series of, quite frankly, ridiculous requests. We'll get to those, those in a second. But it's no wonder that when he comes before this king, we read two things. First, he's afraid. He's afraid for his, for his very life. And so second, he prays, verse 4. I love how the text unfolds. The king says, what is your request? And Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven. Um, this isn't, he didn't say, well, thank you for asking. Why don't we first bow our heads together and pray and then we'll talk. No, this is, this is you know those SOS prayers, 
where you find yourself in a situation and you're like, God, I need you to show up. I'm like, no, you know, like five minutes too late. I, I need you and I need you right now. Once again, before he goes to, 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 to a king, Nehemiah pleads with the king because he knows that his only hope is in the work of God. But then, then after his prayer, now that it's time to act. Look at verses five through eight and just see how Nehemiah attacks it with a full heart. He comes and he brings these requests before the king. Here's what I need, he says. First, I know I'm a slave, but I need you to give me an extended vacation. Guess how often that happened in Persia, right? Second, I need this vacation because I would like your approval to go and rebuild Jerusalem. You remember that city you just destroyed? You remember that city that you said would never be rebuilt? And remember, this is a Persian king. Um, do you remember that, that refrain we get in the Old Testament? The laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. <laughs> like once the king had decreed something, that was it. And so here's Nehemiah saying, hey, I know that was your plan, but how about we go with my plan instead? Then point three, not only do I need all of this, but point three, I need you to pay for the whole thing. (laughs) Sound good? (laughs) A series of ridiculous requests. Nehemiah is deeply afraid, but when it comes to act, his fear does not stop him in his tracks. He's prepared to risk his own life for God's work. He's prepared to live with a full heart. Petra and Tom, you know their names, two of our missionaries serving in the Czech Republic. I got their newsletter this week. If you want to do your heart good, sign up for some of the newsletters that our missionaries send. Lift your horizon beyond the day. Lift your horizon to the nations. Lift your horizon to the work that God is doing in his world. Well, they sent their latest one out this week, and I was just moved by their their wholehearted commitment to God. Some 6.5 million refugees have now fled Ukraine. About 600,000 of them have ended up in the Czech Republic as the percentage of the population that's the highest in all of Europe. And Petra and Tom were, were serving in, in the Czech Republic, but, but not there initially for refugees. But they have, they have risen up and risen to the challenge of this work. Here's some details. They provide housing for over 1,800 people in 11 different facilities across the country. They've just signed a lease to accommodate another 178 people, and they coordinate a team of of, uh, leaders who staff these buildings 24 hours a day, seven days a week, providing food and, and other help to refugees. Can you think about the logistical challenge of housing almost 2,000 refugees? Next, they operate a humanitarian aid warehouse where they distribute food and toiletries and diapers and toys and shoes and more to to refugees. Again, imagine the logistics involved in this. The the middle of a humanitarian crisis, they have to somehow get these resources in the first place and then somehow figure out how to distribute them effectively. As they do so, they provide what they call other assistance and meet unorthodox requests. So, for example, they arrange travel back to Ukraine for an elderly man who was dying and wanted to die in his own home. 
While they were doing everything else, they just throw in there that they've just set up an after-school club for 120 Ukrainian kids. Can you imagine that? If I, if I came to you today and said, hey, I don't know what you've got on this week, there's just one little thing I need you to do. If you can throw this one in. Yeah, I need you to set up an after-school club for 120 refugees. Just, oh, just a little detail that's going on in their lives. And then they get to the relationships. Quote, we feel our true calling is about getting to know the people themselves on a deeper level and building relationships with them. This allows us to share our faith and to tell them about Christ's love for them and connect with them on a spiritual level. We have been part of many spiritual discussions and pray they give their hearts to God. We simply open the door for their relationship with him. They are always the ones to step through. Catch this line in the middle of this refugee crisis. They're the ones who step through to realize this world cannot bring true peace or true justice. At the end of their newsletter, they ask for prayers. And, and now we begin to see the cost, the sacrifice that they're willing to endure for such wholehearted living for God. One point, several of our volunteer team have found it difficult to continue with the work. It's so long and it's so emotional. Pray for healing for us. And then, oh, I love this. Mid-prayer request, Petra bursts into prayer without any transition or segue. She follows that prayer request by saying, may we be known as people marked by justice and mercy and humility with persistent courage as active participants in your kingdom here on earth. Man, friends, don't you want a life like that? Don't you want a life like that? Don't you want to live for God with a full heart? The church in America, American Christianity, its landscape is littered with half-hearted, wishy-washy, nominal, easy believism. And I see the danger of it in my own heart. And that's not the kind of life I want to live for God, friends, don't you want in this time and in this culture to raise the bar over what it means to be a Christian? All of grace, of course, a people who have been saved eternally are secure in his love. And yet a people who really are called to follow him in this life, a people whose lives are, are different because of Christ. Let me ask you, when did you last take a risk for the king? When did you last sacrifice for our God? When did you last risk your reputation to talk to a colleague about faith or risk your comfort by caring for the homeless on our streets or risk your security by giving generously till it hurts. We're called to full hearted living and we want that kind of life. When it's time to act, you need clear eyes, full hearts. Hands up if you know my next point. Okay. I'm proud of you. If you don't, you need to watch more Netflix. It's the only time you'll ever hear me say that. <laughs> Here's a sermon in a sentence. When it's time to act, what do you need? When it's time to act, clear eyes, full hearts. 
can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Look with me at verse 8. Though Nehemiah's request is completely ridiculous, look at verse 8. The king granted me what I asked. How is this possible? How is it possible that he would meet with such success? Well, not because Nehemiah was a genius and not because the king suddenly became kind, but because there's another actor in this text. Look at the verses. The good hand of God was upon me. I told them that the hand of my God had been upon me for good. The God of heaven will make us prosper. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. The God of heaven will make us prosper. Nehemiah is confident God's at work. And if he's confident, how much more confident can we be in Christ? Because friends, the one who calls us to be the church for another generation is the same one who promised that the gates of hell would not prevail. It's the same one who said to us, all authority has been given to me. All authority where? On heaven and on earth. Belongs to me. And, and I tell you on the basis of that authority and on the strength of that authority to go. Go and make disciples of all the nations. I want you to baptize them, evangelize them, and bring them into the family of faith. And then I want you to teach them all that I've commanded them. Disciple them in my word. Be a people who go in my name and under my authority to be the church. And he says, don't you love that the gates of hell won't prevail? Um, you know the gates are a defensive measure. Like, don't think of the church as being under attack from Satan. Jesus says, no, the church is the one that's on the attack. <laughs> the church is the one that's moving, moving out. The church is the one who, who will move forward and will bring my kingdom here on earth. You know how the story of the church ends? In Jesus, we win. <laughs> we win. The promise of the scripture, the promise of his word. This year, a horse called Rich Strike won the Kentucky Derby. The odds were long, uh, set at about 80 to 1. And yet Rich Strike came from behind to, to win. Stacy Conrad, a single mum with five kids, bet on that horse and won $25,000. <laughs> what a day. She said, quote, we were just crazy screaming and I was hyperventilating. The kids were trying to tell me to calm down, but they were all pretty excited too. Now, put the very legitimate concerns about gambling to one side, just for a second. <laughs> What would you do if I told you that I knew who was going to win next year's race? What would you do if you knew? I, like, and I wasn't making it up. I wasn't just um, giving my best guess. Some, somehow I, I, I knew the horse that was going to win. How much would you bet on that horse? Friends, the call to commit to Christ and his church is the call to bet on the winning horse. It's the call to commit to the winning team.
And I promise you that you will never regret anything that you sacrifice for him. Because in the end, the story of the church is that we win. Here's one great example. Jesus says in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Whatever you give up for him, multiply it and ending in eternal life. In the end, the church wins. And friends, let me be so bold as to say that I feel the same way about this capital campaign. That's why me and my family are in. That's why Rosie and I are, are going to give to this. We've, we've committed to give an additional tithe over the next five years because we want to be in. Because we believe in the church for this next generation. We believe in his church for the next generation. And as I've met with our people time and time again, they've told me the same thing. An elder who told me, we're just stewards of this money. We're going to invest it in a way that lasts. A new member who told me, it's a privilege to be part of this. I'm going to stretch and give more than I've ever given before. I'm nervous, but I'm excited too. A young adult who told me, here's what I can do, but let me know if you need more because I can get a side hustle. <laughs> Delivering pizzas for the glory of God. <laughs> I love it. Are these people crazy? No. They're committing to the winning horse. I said at the start, I'd invite you to be part of this capital campaign today. And let me do that by just giving you some information. To be the church in this next generation, we're looking to raise $11.9 million. 70% of which will go to a new elementary space for our children. Essential for us as we move into this next season to be discipling our own kids, but also reaching the kids from our community as well. 30%, the remaining 30% will go to a series of smaller projects to make our campus more welcoming, more hospitable, especially for those who are new. Hopefully you've had a chance to hear all the details on this. You can continue by reading the letter, reading the brochure, getting on our website, watching the town hall that we'll, we'll send out, coming to next week's Q&A if you'd like as well. Been raising money this summer, and over 60 families have already committed to give. Thanks to their generosity, we've already raised $6.7 million. It means we're well over halfway, $5.2 million to go. And next week, you've got the chance to make it happen. You've got the chance to make it happen. Here's the plan. Take the pledge card from the pew rack in front of you. Go and, go and grab one of these cards just now. Here's what I'd love you to do. Take this card and put it somewhere where you see it. Put it in your Bible, stick it on your fridge, and use this week to pray about what God is calling you to give. Gifts can be given over a, a five-year period, and so we're, we're looking for, for your five-year pledge. Fill out the card, put your name on, check that you'll pray, check that you'll give. Fill in the amount that the Lord is, is leading you to give, and bring this card back next week. During a time of worship after the service, we're going to, to pass, pass the plates. And you can put this in the plate with your family in front of your children and say that you're part of the church for this next generation. If you've already given, we encourage you to still bring your card back. Just write committed 
on, on the front, put it in the plate when it comes by. We want everyone to have the opportunity to worship as, as they give. The generosity of our people so far has been tremendous. And we believe that that, that will continue as it continues through, through you. The goal is 100% participation. Come, be part of building the church for this next generation. When it's time to act, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time together in your word and um, for the, the challenge of it. The challenge it gives us to lift our eyes to the, the horizon of kingdom life. That we're not called to live small lives, but called to live big lives for, for, your, for your glory and for your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to, to do just that. To have clear eyes, to have full hearts, to have confidence, because we know that with you, we can't lose. So we pray it all in his perfect name. Amen.